0: Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world,
1: take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan Show. I have such a treat for you today. I have an absolutely extraordinary woman named Janie Brown. Welcome, Janie. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Oh gosh, my honor. You guys are going to love, love, love this woman. This is the first time I've met her, but I know a lot about her and I love her already. So you'll see why when we get into the conversation. Let me tell you a little bit about Janie. Janie Brown was raised in Scotland and educated with a master's in psychology at St. Andrews University and a master's in nursing at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. She worked for many years as an oncology nurse and clinical nurse specialist at BC Cancer in Vancouver. And then in 1995, inspired by the Cancer Help Program at Commonweal, she founded the Kalanish Society, a grassroots nonprofit organization for people living with and dying from cancer. Kalanish is also based in Vancouver. Janie's book, Radical Acts of Love, How We Find Hope at the End of Life was published in 2020. So I have questions for you, my girl. I have many, 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 many questions for you because my husband affectionately calls me an information suck. And so Got it. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those naturally curious people who uh, just wants to know. Here's my first one. Tell us about Kalanish and tell us why you named it Kalanish. Am
1: I pronouncing it right? Uh, it's actually Kalanish. Kalanish, okay. Yeah, Kalanish, but in the Gaelic, it's Kalanay, um, spelled differently. So um, it's a wonderful word, actually. And I think that's where the origin of choosing the name Kalanish for our nonprofit organization. There are many charities that uh, work with people with cancer. And so... I I I didn't necessarily want the word cancer because of the kind of work we do cancer is the disease that of course opens everybody to the experience of living through you know in- incredible challenges that go along with the treatment of cancer but it's not the whole story and I think that the you know this um move toward you know, finding what healing means in the midst of a diagnosis of cancer, or indeed at the end of life, what does healing look like? I didn't necessarily want, um, you know, Kalanish uh, to have the Kalanish Cancer Society, because again, I think it puts the focus on the medicalization of this illness, which is extremely important. The treatment of cancer and the, you know, the conventional system is required, obviously, for this illness, but there's so much more to it. So, so when I'm, as you said, I'm originally from Scotland and uh, that's my heritage all the way back, both generations. <laughs> um, but my mother was born in Canada, so I ended up with citizenship. Um, so I, when we were thinking, what can we call this? I mean, names are so interesting, aren't they? I love you're just Julie Ryan. That's just up, you know, really clear. Um, but I, I, we discovered this name Callanish through sort of a serendipitous, but I knew there was a place called Callanish. But the word is so beautiful to me, it's so soft, and yet it's got this kind of a strength to it, at in in least how I perceive that word. So when I really, this word came to me um, through someone else, and then I, you know, looked up, of course, Callanish, the place, which is in the northern tip of the Outer Hebrides in Scotland, which is a chain of islands down the northwest coast and the top islands called Lewis, the Island of Lewis. And it has the largest standing stone circle um, in the UK, which is almost unheard. I mean, this place isn't really, you know, it's not like Stonehenge or these other Glastonbury, other places people go. But I've always been drawn to these places of mystery. And to me, that place with this, these beautiful, I think think there's 52 stones, but there's a, a beautiful circle of standing stones. And then in the center, there's one tall stone and then there's actually a sort of a cross with four pathways of stones. So um to me the mystery of a five thousand year old stone circle that we really still have no idea what they were doing there other than that they were doing ceremony and ritual and working with the astronomy actually. It's it's connected to the moon the the site of Kalanish. And so every 28 years the full moon comes down to a place in the circle where it kind of joins the stones as a really beautiful to look at picture so all of those reasons i thought i just really the mystery of healing and the mystery of life and death is you know it's always been very dear to my heart for some reason i think i came in with that desire to sort of understand what are we doing here and how do we live with these kind of tragedies and make them into you know something that we can live and live as best we can. So that's the word Kalanish. And to me, it's it's actually become a bit of a pilgrimage site now for people who come, you know, to, to retreat and what does Kalanish mean? And then, oh, let's go on an adventure. And actually, I've been there three times now. The first time was with my mother. And um, when I left the site, I saw a huge owl um, fly across my windshield. You know, it's a very um, barren and quite bleak place, you know, wind and um Grasses and a little village there, but <clears throat> it uh, when I came around the corner the first time, and I saw this circle of stones on the hill, my whole my i just had a kind of quickening my heart was you know when you get kind of oh, what is this, and I could feel the place and all its history, and when I put my hand on the first standing stone. I just had this experience of all the thousands of people before me that had put their hand on that particular stone. And in Scotland, they're unearthing these stone circles over, you know, it's it's really phenomenal. So so that's a long answer to your question. I, hope, I know you've got lots of questions, so I'll stop there. But it's been a name that's really uh, holds a lot of presence and um, power, I think, from this mystery. And and the circle, which is very much how we work in the circle with people. Isn't it older than some of the pyramids too? Uh, Actually, that's a good question. That was another place I I went to because I wanted to stand in front of those pyramids. And so I don't, I I actually don't know, but they're 5,000 years old. So they're 3000 BC. So again, my history, I should know how old the pyramids, maybe you do, but I don't have that in the top of my head, but yeah. These I think it's have, about the same time. I think the ones in Egypt are like five or 6,000 Yeah, they probably years are. Of. I mean, they, they all carry this kind of mystery of how did this, how, why were they doing this and what were they doing and why did they deliberately create these systems that in our world right now we don't, you know, there's something lost, I think, in understanding the relationship with both the cosmos and then kind of the, and the the stone. I mean, the indigenous people would call them the stone people, you know, that they, they they're really powerful presence. So I, I just enjoy that. Um, learning about those places. Yeah. And how did they get them erected and how did they move them there
0: and all of that? Because we think they didn't have the technology that we have. It would be difficult for us to do it even in today's world, but how did they do it back then?
1: No, that's just, I just thought you kind of try and visualize that and you think. Yeah. And there's these photographs in the little museum there that, um, of these people, you know, with these, you know, long dresses, the women are, you know, they're all, they're standing at these stones, you know, I think. So you know, what were they? What did they look like five thousand years ago? We didn't have cameras then. So uh, yeah, I just find, I find the, I find that mystery, that kind of mystery, enlivening in some way. And I think then the mystery of death can even be that way, which sounds strange. And you know that's, that's something we'll talk more about, obviously. But
0: yeah, well, well, well. along those lines, you say illness can enrich somebody's life. Mm. How so? What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's not something you ever you know want in your life because of what it brings, you know, and and just you know the 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 challenges of how to face into not just the you know the rigorous treatment, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, uh, but also just where it takes you out of the life that you've constructed into a very quickly for most people into a different kind of life. And so in that life, of course, is all the, you know, again, as I said, the challenges of that. But there's also something else that's often uncovered. And I wouldn't say for everyone, because I don't I think we all have different paths. But for many people, it's it's really like a reckoning, you know, about, wow, what, you know, how am I going to live with this, that this has happened to my, what I thought was a healthy body, you know, into this situation. And I think it, it, in that way that, um, that we can do, I mean, I think this is so true of our lives, isn't it? When we meet a crossroads, it can be anything and often comes through these challenges that we, we get to look at ourselves and our lives differently. And I suppose that's what our organization, you know, that, that I developed almost 30 years ago with a team um, was, was who, this is what these people who want to look and say, what, what now? What is my life? How am I going to live with fear and uncertainty and worry and fear of death and make something of my life and, you know, wake up to the life that I've been given without it being, oh, it's, you know, it's a, an epiphany. It's not like that. I think it's more, it's the work of that. You know, what? how do we actually really look inward and say, what? what am I going to do with this life now? It becomes more precious and And um, more pressing in a way when you, we all know we're finite, you you do so much work in this area. Um, So, you know, we all know that there's a date, an expiry date, so to speak, but we don't really take it in, a lot of people don't take it in fully and therefore know that this is this breath, then this breath, and then the last breath. So you know, it really is. There is a beginning and an end to our incarnation in this life. So, so I think it. Um, I, I what I what I like to think about is how do we um, enhance and build up the aspects of self that I think have often gone missing in the life that we construct. So, some people come on our retreats and they say, "Oh, I haven't laughed for you know, I haven't laughed for a year." Or, oh, I remember I used to love walking in the forest and I forgot, you know, I got too busy. Or, oh, I used to play, you know, the violin. I haven't done that for 30 years. So it reawakens some of the aspects of self that I think we need. I mean, I think they are who we are. So cancer can be a gateway uh, for those conversations in the inner world. And then I suppose what what we want to provide is a place for people to do that discovery to to discover what are these aspects of myself that i could really bring up so that i have those with me when i have to face the rigors of this disease and this for some the end of their life well, i think
0: some people figured that a little bit of that out during the pandemic too yeah, I
1: think because so too. it
0: let them slow down a little bit and mm-hmm. i i know that people were saying that They always said, oh, I wish I had more time with my family, or I wish I had more time to read a book, or I wish I had more time to do whatever. And they were afforded that with the pandemic situation. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, similar. Mm Mm-hmm. Back to your growing up in Scotland, I always think of Scotland as a, a land of deep spirituality with the Celts and the Druids and King right. Arthur's round Table and Merlin the Magician and all yeah. of that. Most people think that King Arthur's Round Table happened in England, but research is showing that it looks like mm. it happened in Scotland mm-hmm, mm-hmm. instead. And yeah. I find that fascinating. Yeah is there anything from your childhood growing up in Scotland that's made a mark on you to the point where you included it into what you teach today mm-hmm. about the end of life and how to live life whether you have a terminal illness or not is mm-hmm. there i would think some of it's got to be in your dna mm-hmm. yeah. and and how does it surface i one of my favorite quotes about Ireland was there was an American archaeologist there and he was just talking to random people and he said, do you believe in fairies? And one, one woman said, no, sir, I do not and they're everywhere. <laughs> so I think that whole magical spiritual thing of yeah. of England and Ireland and, and Wales and Scotland and all of that is mm-hmm. very specific to that part of the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I wasn't one of the people that had, you know, a very hard, a difficult loss early in life. People think, you know, that you come to this work through your own experience. So I think I do feel the lineage of that I, that I, that I carry. And I I can't describe that very well in words, but I suppose the closest, um, you know, the Celts are kind of a feisty lot. You know, they really (laughs) I mean, they really are. And I, I feel like I carry some of the kind of resoluteness of them. But there's also this magical world. And i my grandmother, my mother's mother, um, who was kind of a door woman, like she wasn't like, oh, my lovely grandchildren, you know, she was a bit scary. And so was my grandfather, you know, they're kind of like, okay, outside and play, you know, it was really, you know, it wasn't like I see grandparents nowadays, you know, um, but you know, again, there was a fascination and we used to go down, they lived in Oxford and I used to go down there every summer with my family. I have three siblings, my parents. And um, she used to say to me, and it's, she always just said it to me. She said, okay, well, um, today we'll go to the fairy circles because there's fairy circles all over that are known to many people. And I used to wait, you know, and I used to ask her every day, can I go, can we go today? And she'd be like, "No." Nope. Not today. You know, so, What's a fairy circle? Well, it's actually a place where fairies live. Um there's a fairy dell and there's a and so all of course we have these images in our mind, because I can't see fairies. I really wish I could. I had a mentor, Dora Kuntz, who is an amazing um clairvoyant woman who is head of the Theosophical Association in the U S and she used to work with energy and she could see, she's actually written a book called the book of fairies. And I, I've read that book many times. I think, Oh, I really wish I could see, but there are places that that people who can see know that that's where the fairies live. So I used to go with her down the path and, uh, and I'd feel, I say, are we nearly there? And she'd say, not yet. And we just walk and walk and then we get there and she'd say, we're here. And of course, as a child, you're like, where are they? You know, I can't see them. But she commanded this sort of knowing, you know, it was really beautiful. So she just said, this is where they live. And so I would just, it's almost like I could conjure them up because I could feel the place. So I think I come from that. I wouldn't say I had no idea who she really was in her being. She was actually one of the first physicians, women physicians at Glasgow University in the first class of female physicians. And she worked for the Red Cross during the war. So I know she came from that kind of healing background, but I don't have any you know, other than what I sense and feel, which is a lot. I, I don't have the data, so to speak, that I came from, you know, something that, but I definitely over the years have felt that more and more. And I feel such a kinship to I always say I live in two countries. I've been in Canada for almost forty years now. But my mother, who just died four months ago, was in Glasgow right up until she died. And so I've been there back there and my sisters live in London. And so it's a very it's a very I have a very strong connection to that. But I've I suppose with spirituality it's interesting with the Celts and I have I haven't wanted to I mean I've delved into many you know, many kinds of teachings. But I'm always wary to put an overlay of too much belief, you know, like like to create a sort of go into the structure of something and then it becomes my own, if that makes sense to you. but So I've wanted to more feel it and <clears throat> learn it through my own experience, I suppose, what is my relationship. So I know that my roots are very strong there and uh, I will continue to go back there and... Um, you know, and I keep meeting people. People appear at the door, yes, this lovely young Irishman. Oh, I'm working at, you know, end of life and I, you know and you know, you just these there's a kin, there's a gathering of the clan wherever we live, I think. I'm sure you feel that too for your own you know, who comes to you and how and it's also interesting. Well, the fairies appear to me looking like Tinkerbell, just because that's what I was taught
0: fairies look like by Walt Disney, certainly. And they have magic wands and they put little sparkles around. When my grandsons were little and they were losing their teeth, the tooth fairy came to visit them.
1: Yes. And there's
0: a botanical garden near our home that has a fairy village that's Mm. built out of twigs and Mm-hmm. Bottom, I don't know, leaves and yeah. sticks and stuff yeah. like that. And so I, when they'd lose a tooth, we'd go visit the tooth fairy yeah. at the fairy village to thank them Aww. for bringing a dollar. And I'd say... Their imaginations just go wild because I'd say, okay, now it's daytime, they're asleep because they work at night bringing yeah. money to the kids who have lost a tomb. Yeah. And I'd take them, and they're all teenagers now, one's starting college. Oh, wow. And so they still talk about Fairy Village. I know. I know. That's, so it, that it sinks in there.
1: Yeah, it's in there. You know, it's in there. In
0: there. <laughs> do you find when somebody's faced with a terminal? Diagnosis that sometimes the family's fear is greater than the patient's. Mm.
1: Definitely. I mean, I think that <clears throat> depends on the stage of things. Uh often the diagnosis itself, it's say a stage four, a very serious cancer. I think the person who receives that news in their body, you know, it's their body, that there's a certain process they go through of, you know, shock, especially if it's come as a surprise. And then they go through various um, stages of working through, or not, or just living with um, all of these um, stages of grief and loss and fear, and you know all, all these things. These emotional, this emotional landscape that I've always been very curious about: how people do that? How do they do that? So then the family often takes their cues from the person. So this is they have their own experience. The family members. But then they, t- they they kind of take their leadership from the person often, and that that goes can go really well, and it can also be very difficult because depending on their often it's the relationship with anxiety I notice that you know can really influence a family so much you know if there's been a history of so, you know so much, everybody gets really anxious and really worried, and so that can really affect. Um, the person with cancer trying to find their way, you know, and trying to find how could, is it even possible to feel peace in the midst of this or even joy? You know, how do you do that? But then if they're surrounded by a family that has so much angst or so much, you know, or, or previous history of, of illness in their family, that's not gone so well, you know, there's all we bring, of course, our whole life to those experiences. And, then we act out of those if we haven't got enough awareness to know we're doing that. So I think the family there's a very interesting thing that happens where you know again it depends the the relationship to hope is such an interesting one, you know, because the family often feels that it's their job to hold the hope somehow. And so they often say to me, well if I if I if I open up the conversation about dying with my loved one, then somehow it's going to communicate to them that I'm giving up hope, which of course is not really the point, right? So when you say give up hope, you can say, well, oh, give up hope that you're going to live a long time. Or, you know, do we do we continue to hold hope? So there's a, there's a kind of um, relationship of protection that happens. And you see this a lot around children as well, obviously. <laughs> you know, we try and protect one another from pain. So families do a, often a good job of that, trying to protect their loved one. But the, the the loved one saying, I don't want that protection. I want openness. I want to be able to talk about this difficult time in my life. And so those are where things get really thwarted, you know, the, the communication, because everyone's in a way pretending, oh, this is going to be OK. This is going to be fine. And, and if it's not going to be fine, how do they build the muscle How do they build the muscle to learn how to communicate about difficult things? And it depends so much on the family, doesn't it? If the family has a history of working through things together, then I see these families do such a beautiful job of, we got to talk about this hard stuff. You know, what's going to happen? How are we going to do that as a family? You know, what work do we have to do together to make this as good a time as it can be, given the tragedy of it? So I think families, families really interest me actually, because I, you know, I've worked so much with the whole family and I think it's such a, you know, I often say to the person who's ill, you know, it, it is up to you in a way to lead, to lead people into those conversations because you feel scared to, families feel scared to say, you know, I'm, should we talk about this sort of you know this subject that we've pushed so far away in our Western world anyway, it's not so true in many cultures you know in our country, but you know we've we've pushed away death so far that we don't we we don't have a familiarity anymore with it. you know I was raised to have our grandparents in our home when they died, so that's you know that's maybe the answer to your question that you asked me you know i I saw my grandmother you know die in our home as a child while I was a teenager, and so that that familiarity is what we've lost. I mean, I meet people who are sixty seventy've never seen anyone die, so no wonder there's such a terror, and no wonder we've we've disempowered ourselves to say we can do this in families we there is a way to accompany our families. And we've medicalized it so much. We've taken away the energy and the strength in a family to actually help a loved one through the end of life. And that, that sorrow, it that, that gives me a lot of sorrow that because, you know, throughout time, before we even had hospitals, we were doing that. And I'm glad for the things we do have now that we didn't have then, such as, you know, pain management and ways to make people more comfortable. But um, People really don't believe they have what they need to help a loved one through the end of life. And I do think we all have that as humans. You know, if we can get the coaching or the you know, the role modeling, you know, I often say to people, well, go and be a hospice volunteer learn about what is death like? You know, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What can you do in it? And, you know, that's an amazing place to get training and understanding of death rather than, oh, just wait till that happens. And then we'll deal with it. I often say that about birth. You know, you can, uh, you know, you can wait till you go into labor to figure out where you're going to be and who's your team. But of course, that doesn't really work very well. So in death, we think, well, we'll just figure it out when we get there. But it doesn't go very well when we do that, sadly. So you can stop me anytime. I do tend to talk. (laughs) Oh, it's fascinating. What? You touched
0: on it a little bit. You that you think end of life has been medicalized. One of my favorite hospice doctors is Chris Kerr in Buffalo. And and he says end of life care is an assembly line of the absurd. Which I think is so appropriate. And and how did we get there? How did we go from knowing as a family, as a culture, how to how to deal mm-hmm. with death? How how to help people, our loved ones, to where we are now, and and is it because a lot of physicians
1: are afraid to talk about death? Mm, that's such a good question. I mean, I've thought about that question so much. What what happened? And I do think the the development of the experts, which of course is a brilliant thing, <laughs> we've got experts who know how to do a lot of really important things. But then I think what that does is it separates us as humans, you know, that we're all going to face this end of life. I mean, not everyone will give birth, but everyone will be born and everyone will die. So so we create a group of experts. And yeah, and how those experts lead the way, I mean, this is why the hospice and palliative care movement's been so important because those experts decided that's going to be my expertise, which thank goodness, because they, they really are leading. But again, such a small percentage of people get the benefit of hospice or palliative care. I think it's something like less than 10% of people die in a hospice or have hospice care at home. So I think it's, a. I mean, I really like to think that we can relearn what we've lost. Um, that would be my hope. And that's, I think, what we're so much do, trying to do here is we're trying to teach people that you have what you need to be with the person that you love and with all the sorrow. And, you know, it's not like you have to be there as a stoic, strong person. You can still be, you can learn to care and be present with all of that. So it's, um, I mean, I have to feel hopeful that we can get there, but it's certainly, I love what you just said about the absurd. That is so much how I feel. You know, when I hear these stories about what happens to people, especially the elderly, we're just in a real pickle with what we're doing at the end of life. Feeding people who don't want food, and you know, there's just a real, there's something, um, you know, I think very, very. I love the word. I'm going to use the word absurd about how we got here and this fountain of youth. You know that 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 this whole movement of Um, that we don't treat our elders as elders. We treat our elders as, you know, we shun them in some way. So I'm very sad where we are, but I do have a lot of hope that people really want to know how to do this. They want to learn how to communicate and they want to be able to be present all the way through for their loved ones, but they just don't really know how. So it's, it's really quite basic, you know, the knowledge to say, yeah, just sit there you know read a book read out loud you know just just be yourself because i think again the experts take away that humanness even at the bedside you know i walk into rooms and there's the family are standing in the corner you know i'm thinking come in you know come closer it's not don't you don't need to be so scared but you need someone to say well what what is the symptom and what does that mean you know, if this person is in this state, what does it mean? So we have a lot of relearning. I think we did all, all know this, and many cultures know this today. You know, in our world today, many cultures are much more familiar and up close with death um, than the Caucasian, you know, the Western world where we're struggling, I think, to find our way um, back. And in so many ways, I think we're struggling to find our way back, but we also need to move forward.
0: Well, hmm. fortunately, I believe that the baby boomer generation of which you and I are a part are, we're fascinated with this and we yeah. want to figure out, yeah. okay, what do we need to do? And we're the gen- the first generation since our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who question mm-hmm. medical experts. Right. And we say... Right. Well, Okay, you're saying this, but my mom's 95 and you want to do chemo and radiation on her. And why do Mm. we want to put her through that? Exactly. Yeah. And, and we have the wherewithal and the strength and the courage to say, "Mm, that just doesn't feel right. Let me look into see what else is going on and really be an advocate. Yeah. For our elderly and our, yeah. our loved ones who are ill to exactly. help them make decisions. Exactly. And people like you are educating mm-hmm. the world. So one of the reasons why, as mm-hmm. I mentioned, I think you're so extraordinary in the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Thank you. When someone's diagnosed, you've, I've heard you say that you believe a portion of our humanity goes underground, is that what you're talking about, that mm-hmm. the fear takes over? and the mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the survival instinct that we're hardwired for, you know, the body's survival for obvious reasons. So, so then I think we click into that survival mode and we forget a lot of these parts of ourselves that we actually need at a time like that. So, yes, I think fear can take over, anxiety, and then... Yeah, the rigors of what's required of you every day to get up out of bed and go in and have a chemotherapy treatment that seems to many people like, why you know, what, why am I putting the you know they, they, the nurse's gown and mask up and then they to put this chemical in your body you know so there's there's all this absurdity about that too you know so what what does that feel like to go and receive treatment that I mean and really does cure a lot of people there are many people who are cured by these <clears throat> these drugs and these, but again, you're right. There's a broadening of, there's a broadening that's happening as well. But yes, I do think that um, we have people when they arrive at the doors of our retreat, we do a five night retreat. They're so tired from the journey of you know that, just the brutality of having to go and deal with this, this disease. <clears throat> so they come just ready to, oh, you know, like unload, first of all. The first step is they unload their grief, usually the sorrow that's been there from the moment of diagnosis where life changed forever, really. Even if they are cured from their disease, it, they always have the knowledge that their body, somehow cancer grew in their body. So could that happen again? So that's that ongoing relationship you have with your body and with cancer, even when you've you you know you've had a good long um, survival. So it's always there. So I think that this this um, if you can actually offload in a safe place with people who aren't giving you advice and telling you what you should do and what you should eat and how you should feel, if you can really be in a place that says, "Just be yourself, tell us your story," you can literally you know unpack and unload some of those burdens that. And then, of course, underneath those burdens or those issues are the life story. Of things that have happened before that that haven't been um, allowed a place to be seen or heard, or you you know you haven't found a place that you could do that. So all of that's this, I think, this very powerful process of allowing and naming, you know, what's what's inside, and and to put it into a safe place with witnesses to say, okay, you know, I'm not going to tell you that that's right, wrong, good, bad. I'm just going to hear you. Hear your story. And then what happens is this energy, which I think is the energy of life, <clears throat> life force actually comes in behind that sort of emptying out of these. You know, some people at the last retreat, someone said, I've never told anyone this story. And I'm telling it now because it's here and I want to tell it. So then that creates, I believe, that creates a, an energy in the body that then opens up, you know all about this. I'm telling you things you already know, but <clears throat> in my words, they may be different than yours. Um, so then the body starts to open those places of holding. And I think then the remembering starts to happen. Oh, I can, you know, I can still, I don't know, do whatever. I can, I can be myself. I can, oh, I used to cook. I never haven't cooked for ages. Oh, I feel like going out you know, people start to naturally wake up to these parts that I think you forget. I mean, we all forget through our life, don't we? We kind of pack on, you know, because we construct the lives that we live. And so I think those we need those aspects of ourself really to be able to live through these kind of illnesses and to face the end of life. And I always think if you could meet yourself again, really, maybe you've never met yourself before. If you could really um, know who you are, then it's possible to step over that threshold between life and death. And I see that with the work people do. They just get, they get the sense that I know how to do that. And I always say the body knows how to die. I mean, it actually is wired. It's wired to come in. I mean, the the woman has to give birth, but the baby is the one that actually comes in. I mean, I'd love to talk to you more about your thoughts on all this. but. Um, so, and then, so, so in death, the same, you go into the death canal. I think of it very similarly, and there's an intelligence. And so, there's an intelligence to know how to do that. So, we don't think we know how to do that. But I've watched so many people die that I know that they have. We all have that intelligence. So, that's a deep reassurance in a way that we'll know when it's our time how to do it. Our bodies no, but in the what we were just talking about, then if the system goes against that intelligence and says, oh, but we should still give you food and your body's saying, I don't really want food, you know, then there's kind of, it gets all mucked up in there. But now I do really believe we have that um, capacity and thank goodness we have communities of support to make sure your body can be comfortable through the, you know, the palliative system, hospice system. But I think we do know how to to leave and I think we know more we're not so caught up with these stories of our past if we can do that work now you know if we can do it before because I see people you know suffer and struggle at the end of life and it's these stories that they've never they've never often you know there's and you get little fragments of story that I think oh there's a big story there. You know, I'd love that person to be able to just lay the story down, you know, and then and then there's a something can happen for them. So I suppose that's my mission if I have one. I don't know if I have a mission. <laughs> I want people to be relieved enough to know who they are and find their way to the you know, in life to that point and then be as prepared as possible, which isn't always possible because of suddenness. Suddenness of you know death and all of those things we also know happen. I have
0: a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, disease sometimes is the catalyst to get yes. us to look at, okay, I have a finite amount of time left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do I want to spend it? Mm-hmm. And there's always an emotional component. It's been my experience. There's always an emotional component in place before any kind of medical situation mm-hmm. arises. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the, I believe the most important part of an energetic healing as I do them Mm -hmm. with spirit working through me and with me is normally at the end of a session with someone we'll explore that and Mm -hmm. I'll see an actual event Mm -hmm. and I'll get a year. And if it's past life, we'll get that. And Mm -hmm. once we illuminate where... Mm -hmm. that energy block began, Mm -hmm. it eradicates it instantly, Uh which is what you're talking about, they're doing when they tell their stories. It eradicates it instantly, Mm -hmm. it helps the body regain and maintain health. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the healing is death. Mm -hmm. right? And the other thing that's interesting too is 90 research shows, and it's been my experience, that's what my angelic attendance book is about, Research shows that 90% of people at the end of their lives see the spirits of deceased loved ones and pets as they're approaching death, either in Mm -hmm. visions or dreams. And I find when I talk to people about that who are experiencing that real Mm -hmm. time, they are so relieved Mm -hmm. because perhaps they've spent decades in some instances feeling guilty about treating a parent a certain way or a sibling or a friend or an ex-spouse or somebody like that. Mm -hmm. And that person's spirit's there Mm -hmm. to support them as they're dying and to welcome Mm -hmm. them to what I call heaven. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same thing going on as what you're talking about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with the stories is Mm -hmm. they they feel such a sense of comfort and release and relief, actually, as well as they're doing that. Have you... Experience that with your
1: patients. Yes. What you're describing about um, people speaking—well, I just experienced it with my mother. Um, where two weeks before she died, she was talking definitely, and there was a man sitting on the chair in her room. But my experience is not always people we know, and that's that's very interesting. And you probably have something to say about that. She didn't know this man, but he was. A, I said, "Is he friendly?" And she said, "Yeah, he's friendly." And um, and then there was a cat, and she doesn't. She's actually allergic to cats. So I find it all quite interesting that the people that come to attend. If that's how you describe that, I think that's quite beautiful. That strangers, you know, I think about. You know, often when I when I step into that first retreat, and I've never met these people, I think, wow, we can get so close to strangers, like within, you know, so quickly. We've never met, but you know, I've I've certainly watched you and. And I, you know, I can feel a kinship. So it's amazing how quickly. So isn't that lovely thought that there's this lovely man that came? And then my mother, who was such, you know, just to get a kick out of that, she's such an atheist, like she just really, I mean, her, as she said, nature was her God, which I understand more as a pagan. But she, um, she said like two days before she died, she said, oh, I think I'm going to go to church. And I said, you are? And she said, yeah, and I'm going to wear black. And I said, "Mom, you've never you you were a member of the church, and you left the church." And she said, "Yeah." I, I said, "Why are you going?" And she said, "Well, I think I have something to learn. I still think I have something to learn. I want to find out what it's all about." And I just thought that was so fun. And then you'll get a kick out of this. About a few hours later, through our front door, this was at her home in Glasgow. I was there through her death at home, and the elder from the church, who's never come to her house since my father died a long time ago. Um, put a little flyer through the door about, you know, the church, <laughs> just a few hours after she'd, so either she felt him coming, I don't know, I mean, it was very interesting. So I hear a lot of stories about, yeah, and I've seen that, that there's, and often it's there's a mumbling, so you can't necessarily hear what people are saying. But I love the, the way to engage with people and ask, you know, you can go into conversation. Just with this kind of openness, what who are you talking to, and who's here, and and there's often a response, you know. There's often, but I think sometimes we have to be willing to go into that conversation because it, you know, people are often so, oh, what's going on, and the person's hallucinating, and well, maybe exactly. maybe they're hallucinating, but maybe there's something happening that, is, you know, we could be curious about, which I just love. I mean, I like the idea of this man sitting. She wasn't scared of him, so if she was scared of him, I'd probably tell her to tell him to shove off but um you know it's nice yeah. to think of that it's- yeah. Most likely somebody from a past
0: life because when the spirits start to congregate and I can see them telepathically Mm. when I'm working with somebody, I can see them in the room and I can describe what they Uh look like. And Janie, it's so fun because they show up like in period dress. There may be people Uh from the Renaissance and people dressed like Twiggy from the 1960s with go-go boots and mini skirts. And the cat most likely was a pet.
1: Yeah. In a prior life. Yeah. Interesting.
0: And and the difference between hallucinization Mm. and also the spirits that are there at the end of life is the spirits that are there to welcome them are very comforting. Uh Whereas when somebody's hallucinating, and you know this from your medical background, it's
1: distressing to them. Right. That's right. It's a comforting. It's definitely that. I I had a picture of him. So I don't know if it was just my imagination, but I saw him as a. A farmer, like with a tweed cap on, like, and I don't know if that was just me imagining that, but, and then I thought, well, her family were, they were farmers, you know. Sure. Yeah. Of course, everyone's sure. family were farmers, but he was just a solid kind of, just the way she described him. So I like, I like the thought of that too. But. She would have said, Oh, it's just nonsense, you know. But anyway, right. <laughs> was, but not at the end of life because she didn't have anything. She was, was at that point. Right? Against.
0: Yeah, exactly. She wasn't trying to keep up, you know, appearances. Exactly. Yeah. I have a client. I had a client who was an elderly Jewish man mm-hmm. who was dying and was hanging on, hanging on, hanging on. And his wife and I were on the phone multiple times and she said, What? the heck is going on? What does he need to go? Mm-hmm. Well, he kept telling her that he needed to see the rabbi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said, you haven't been inside a synagogue <laughs> in <laughs> decades. Why do you need to see the rabbi? Right. I just need to see the rabbi. I just see, need to see the rabbi. So I said to her, get a get rabbi a to rabbi. come visit. Yeah. What the heck? Yeah. And he was brought up Jewish and went to yeah. temple and did the high yeah. holy days yeah. and yeah. all that jazz. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so she found a rabbi to come visit him and he died within a couple of hours. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of that, I would love to hear your take on that. A mm-hmm. lot of that, I believe, has to do with we go back to how we were raised. Mm-hmm. And that's so ingrained Mm -hmm. in us. And whether you believe in all the dogma or not, Mm -hmm. the spiritual part of it is there. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. the part that stays constant and remains. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's what was going on with your mom Mm -hmm. wanting to go to church, especially
1: if she was raised going Mm -hmm. to church. Mm -hmm. She wasn't. She wasn't. Did she 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 ever go? No. She Well, she went with my father who was a member of the church, but she didn't she didn't relate to the structure of it. and the Even as know. a child, though, she went no. with your dad? No, her parents were communists, actually. <laughs> it's an interesting oh my gosh. story. Yeah, wow. they were very interesting, sort of intellectual. Uh, but they no, they she was raised as an atheist in their household. So I think... But her again, dad went to church, though, you said? My dad was a member of the church, yeah. Oh, your dad, not yeah. her dad. Oh, her husband, yeah. Your dad, yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. that spiritual vibe... Yeah. Got
0: in there somehow, mm-hmm. and that's what the part with which she was resonating at the end. Yes, she—that's what propelled her and led mm-hmm. her to mm-hmm. want to go to church. Yes, yeah, interesting, and, and all of the dogma and nonsense that's come down through the ages with every religion, right? goes by the wayside because Mm -hmm. they all were founded on the spiritual component. Mm -hmm. And that's what we focus on and not Mm -hmm. so much the human side of the equation of what the humans have put in. Changing topics a little bit. I love the story about the child who wanted to remember her daddy's kisses. Can you tell us about that and also tell us how... Can we involve children mm. when somebody that they love has a terminal illness? And does it make sense to involve them in, the, in some kind of a funeral or remembrance ceremony? Have you ever heard of Cozy Earth Bedding? It's your ultimate luxury escape. Cozy Earth sheets are temperature regulating and incredibly soft, and they even have a 10-year warranty. That's cozy and use code ASKJULIE for a 35% discount. Upgrade your sleep with Cozy Earth Bedding. I love them and so will you.
1: Yeah, uh, I really, I don't think children are as scared, actually. It's usually they pick that up from the parents or the family. So I think naturally they're curious, especially the younger kids, until they've got these layers of fear built in. But um, so I I always encourage families to include the children and ask them if they want to come into the room, you know, and they know, they'll say no, or I could, and then you might say, well, if I came with you or, you know, and they say yes. So that, again, this intelligence of children, I think we tend to, we overprotect, of course, because that's our nature. But I think children have a natural curiosity. So a lot of the families I've worked with, and it's really sad when you're working with Parent, young parents who are dying and they have young children. I mean, it is really, I would say, the hardest part of my work. Um, but I'm so moved, like this little, um, this family that, that I wrote about, it was very moving because <clears throat> she had a, he came to see me, her father, and he wanted her to just wait in the waiting room when I could lock that door. And so he she brought her coloring books and everything. And so I said, just knock on the door if you want to come in. And she's, she was fine. She was about eight and so we were talking, he, her dad and I, and then the little knock came, you know. And I thought, she of course she wants to come in. She wants to know what we're talking about. So she sat down beside him and she said, "What are you talking about?" And I looked at him to see, and he looked at me, kind of, de- you know, you speak, you say. I said, "Well, we're talking about your daddy. You know, he, you know, he has cancer." And she said, "Yeah, and he's going to die, like just like that." So he was quite surprised. You see how much. Children already know because he didn't think he hadn't really talked to them about that, so right off the bat that we got into this conversation about and it was very beautiful to see you know him actually be led along by her because she you know and, I, and then that's I where I introduced this idea of a memory box which I've worked with children with, you know, where you before the person dies, you sit together and you say, well, let's talk about the memories that you're going to have after, because all the things you've done with your daddy um, in in these eight years, you've got those are going to be really important to you. And so that's what she, you know, we started to talk about putting, well, I want to put this in daddy, and I want to put a piece of your clothes, you know, it's just so beautiful. And then she said, and I want to put your kisses in. Of course, that, Dissolved both of us, you know, her dad and I, you know. And then I said, "How do you?" So ask them. How do you think we could put his kisses in? I wouldn't have had a clue what to say. You know, I would have maybe fumbled around. You know, again, we're not, we we, we can't get into the world of the child's imagination that easily. And she was the one who said, "Well, Daddy, you could put lipstick, Mummy's lipstick, on, and then you could kiss paper, and then I could cut out the paper, and we could put the kisses in the box." And I honestly just my eye, I could not hold back. That was such a moving moment, you know, and he just got carried along. So I really believe that kids can can be helped to be okay with all of it. And um, it's dependent a bit on the child. You know, if the child has a sort of anxiety, history of anxiety, you have to be very careful in the pacing. But I always say to adults, parents or grandparents, just to, to talk about Things you know, give the you have to pace it, and it's true with us. So, when there's news, and when there's a change, maybe the treatment's not working anymore, or there might be a new treatment, then that's the time to tell them. So, they have to build up trust that what you'll do is you'll tell them things as you go along. So, what most adults do with kids is they wait too long so the kids haven't been part of the process so they may know that the parent had cancer like in this situation but they don't know the degree to which how ill the person is and what you don't want to do is to go too far ahead to say oh well this you know i'm going to die and you know the doctor's given me a prognosis you don't want to give too much because children can't really manage that like six months from now i'm talking about young kids so you give them enough information. And usually when they're satisfied, they'll they'll stop asking the questions. But the fact that they're asking questions is a good sign. Some kids just don't ask anything. Those are the parents that are most worried. Well, how, how are they feeling and what are they? So you have to give them a chance, you know, through play or through other ways to express themselves. But I have watched so many parents and their young kids or even older teenagers, you know, just find a way to say goodbye. Because that's the regret afterwards, if you haven't been able to with enormous courage and i can I can't judge parents or grandparents who can't do this because it is really a big thing to be able to tell your young people that you're going to die and that you know that you will you know you will carry them with you however your whatever your faith tradition is, whatever your beliefs you know find a way to reassure them that you're okay and that you will always be in the family in in a certain way. And, you know, find your own stories about that that make sense. You know, if it's heaven, that's helpful for kids to know there's a place. And But I think that um, children do really well if they're in the know. I think kids I see really who really struggle are kids who have not been brought in, and it then things happen quickly in their view, because it probably wasn't happening that quickly. But then they get brought in in the last few days, and it's really traumatic then, because they haven't had the chance for their little systems, energetic systems, to you know calibrate to this leaving. Although they know it, so again, it sets up a lot of tension, I think when there's pretence that oh everything's you know i'm gonna you know i'm gonna be fine I mean parents say that, and there they are living with this very serious situation that the kids I know many of them they ask me sometimes um you know is is mummy going to die and it's just shocking when out of the blue you're asked that question because they they want validation really, for what they already know, you know. And then they and then they get into their the young ones get into their imagination well where is it where where is she going to go and, and i'll say well where do you think and they'll say well up there up way up there way beyond the clouds a little boy said that to me and i said oh what do you think it'll be like there and he said oh i think it'll be fun i, I hope she gets to play baseball like you know of course this little world of his so, oh well, that, i think that would be fun you could imagine her playing baseball up there but how would she, how would she put a glove on? Cause she wouldn't have a body. <laughs> it's like such a good question. said, <laughs> good question. <laughs> so kids are, I've learned so much from these little people really. And I think if they're brought in, then they do better in their grieving as well, because they've already got some capacity, you know, to be allowed to feel, to feel sad and, and to be part of the few. I mean, I think, I wasn't allowed, I wasn't able to go, I wasn't allowed to go to my grandfather's funeral. And, and it was such a strange feeling because why wouldn't I be able to go? And it was the circumstances of his death were very difficult. But I, you know, I, I I was an early teen and I thought that doesn't make any sense to me. And I think kids, why wouldn't I be included? Again, going back over centuries, children, babies, everybody goes to these funerals or wakes. and so. I think kids do much better if we can be courageous and help them to understand what's happening and what illness is and alleviate some of the myths they have, you know, about catching it or, you know, that they did something wrong. It's a lot of those kind of magical thinking. Kids feel really responsible for things that have happened. Yeah. That's why I wrote my series of children's books,
0: because I had so many moms over the years say, can you explain, help me explain to my child what happens when somebody dies and Mm -hmm. how can my child know things about my grandfather who Mm -hmm. passed before he was born, but he describes my grandfather's spirit in the room with him. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather tells him things that there's no way my child would know. And how does my child know about past Mm -hmm. life? Mm-hmm. stuff that we can corroborate with historic documents online and this kid can't read yet. And so that's why I wrote my children's mm-hmm. book series was to help with that. Back mm-hmm. to your memory box, here's here's something else that, that I think pertains. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a client who was in her probably late 30s, I would imagine, mm-hmm. and her grandfather had just passed and she her grandfather and grandmother raised her Mm-hmm. So it was like she was losing her parent. And the grandfather, we were talking to the grandfather's spirit, my client and I, which people find so comforting mm-hmm. when they can communicate with their deceased loved mm-hmm. ones. And I teach them how to do that. And then mm-hmm. I do that to help yeah. them along. Yeah. So anyways, grand, the grandfather was telling her about, a, he was talking about a box and he was talking about keys. And I said, she said, can he send me a sign or can he let me know that this is really him? And I said, well, he's talking about a box. He's talking about keys. Well, so we, she said, that doesn't mean anything to me. So later on in the conversation, she said, well, my grandfather started this box for me, and he has all kinds of little trinkets and mm-hmm. rocks and little whatever in there that he's put in there my whole life. And she said, and the thing that's so interesting is he has this set of antique keys in there. And I'm saying, duh, the box and the keys. And she started laughing and she said, oh my God, you're right. And, And so the memory box thing, I think not only has connotation with, Somebody's making that for me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but also when spirits communicating with their loved one who's mm-hmm. still alive, they can reference the stuff that's in the oh. in the box, oh. like this spirit did with his <laughs> grandfather or with his granddaughter right, who's still right. alive, oh. and referenced a couple of things that were in the box and the that's box itself. So, oh. so I thought so that it, it made yeah. me think of that when you were yeah. talking about yeah. the memory box. Yeah. Why do some people have a tough time enjoying the person while they're still with us and instead they're so ensconced in what I call anticipatory grief mm-hmm. yeah. they it's like wake up, Francis, mm-hmm. you've got mm-hmm. your loved ones still here mm-hmm. Let's enjoy them while they're here certainly mm-hmm. you can you can have a relationship with them when they're in spirit, but but how do you move somebody off that anticipatory grief? Because we all do that. We mm-hmm. all have <clears throat> thoughts that are leading us to, "Oh my gosh, what's going to happen?" and "How are we going to get through this?" and "How are we going to mm-hmm. do
1: this?" Even to the point where, "How would we do their funeral?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had I've had many people like that too, and it is, and it's it's kind of, um, yeah, you want to like say, "Wake up, <laughs> you know this. It's not going to be long," and. And people are very, again, they're, they're. Uh, um, so what would I say about that? I think that um, I have to say people bring their personalities to the end of life with them. So I would say that you can almost predict who might be that way, who feel that their life's, you know, in a way being interfered with and they want to move on, you know, that they, that they want to get this over with. Part of anticipatory grief is, I want to be on the other side of it. I'm grieving now, and let's just get this on the road because I want to. And it's not conscious like that, but there's a sense of, I want, this is too difficult. I want to get past this and get back to some semblance of my life. Of course, what they don't understand is that the grief that will accompany them after is not going to be like any life they've had before. But there is this sort of. again, a kind of personality that finds it very hard to drop into the reality of separation. You know, I see this, especially with couples who've been together a long time, you know, where it just is, they've all, I think of it as being kind of fused as one energy, you know, and so this idea of separation is kind of impossible and very, very painful and, and hard to actually Get to in conversation, I mean these are often people who can 't talk about this fact that this will be this will be us separating in the physical form, so I do think anticipatory grief is that often anxious people have that more because they're all and they' that 's a habit pattern of anxiety so you know, they're kind of ahead, you know, like I think of myself as a, a, I love planning, you know, my little year long planner. I'm all, you know, I'm always liking my future, you know, my future. And that's partly, I remember in a meditation retreat, voice in my head said, you've missed your life because you're, you know, you're ahead of yourself. So I, I, I recognize that with people who are, who go very quickly into it's all over and Yes, it will be over, but not, as you said, not right now, it's not. You're here. And, um, you know, people say some interesting things, Well, I just, you know, it can be quite, it can be quite harsh because it's almost like the person's being dismissed already, you know, And, and people often, they feel that. You know, they feel that yeah, I, I want you to get on with your life, but not quite yet. You know, how, so
0: how do you how do you counsel somebody that's feeling that to pull themselves back and be present with yeah. their loved one while they're still alive? Do well, you do you have a technique that I, you yeah, use or suggestions?
1: I, yeah, I mean, I really feel that that's a tricky. I would say that that's quite difficult because we hold. Um, you know, those structures are pretty strong, you know, inside a person. So I think the only way is to help people into more deeply into the sorrow. And that isn't always possible. the defenses are strong, you know, and they're, so I think I've probably succeeded less times than I failed in that regard. (laughs) Because I think I then I have to honor, oh, this is how this person has to go through this in some way, you know, It because I want like you, I want it to be Oh, just and I've tried all sorts of ways, like you said, just like this is. And I I remember saying to this couple, and like, you know, he's he's actually dying. You know, it's kind of how how pointed, but that didn't even penetrate. So there's not a lot that can penetrate except when you can get them by themselves and and try and soften the defenses, and then when you can get them, because often there are people who they're in the anticipatory grief, but that's actually a mental process, worry, worry, worry. It's not a visceral sorrow or fear like the emotion is different so if i can get people into their emotion there are often people that don't cry that much they're just in the worry of it is that your experience or depends yeah
0: it, it's a safety
1: mechanism yes. they're
0: trying they're they're afraid yes. not only of losing their loved one yeah. but it makes them face their own mortality exactly. as well yeah. and in our Judeo-Christian culture, mm-hmm. they're afraid, are they going to fly or are they going to fry? Right. Yeah. And I find that people are very afraid of going to hell or purgatory yeah. or whatever their belief is. Right. and And that causes so much unnecessary yeah. fear. Yeah. Right. So which it is... clouds everything, as you said. Right. right. Which I've tried to... Allay Mm -hmm. those fears Mm -hmm. with my angelic attendance book. Well, yeah, it's definitely something that I see a lot and have experienced myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With loved ones at the end of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. How important is ritual? And how it seems like people have moved away in some instances from our traditional Mm -hmm. funerals and wakes. Mm -hmm. And, and, I see that there's- there are ramifications for that. Are you seeing that as well? How important is it to mm-hmm. have some kind of a ritual or remembrance
1: yeah i mean i that's going to be my next book actually. I'm writing about ceremony because I think it's I think it's extremely helpful because Within the ceremony, you get a sense of the whole, really. I mean, I think that's what, you know, that's one way of describing that. So whatever the ceremony is, it can be a tiny gesture, but it does give you, uh, your view expands. And so I think if people come from faith traditions, I mean, it's very comforting for people and so helpful. You know, the the Jewish people that I know, they, they just have the the rituals laid out. There's nothing to decide. <laughs> you know, it's really, there's obviously things to decide but not really like it's so comforting so i think when people are not in you know involved in a faith tradition then they are people are wanting ceremony now and wanting somehow to, how do you do that and i i i'm personally really interested in that because i think it's extremely helpful and again children love ceremony so i we've done so and we're doing more and more ceremony here um, also around healing ceremony for people, because, you know, how do you do that release of the fear and the anxiety and these stories that I've talked about? I I think the ceremony can come through all sorts of um, times during that trajectory of our life, you know, not just at the weddings, funerals. I think there's ceremony. It's innate in us, I think. I really believe that, that we, we can, if we can find ceremony inside. So actually, I'm in the process of designing a retreat for September where we're doing eight personal ceremonies for people who are at very varying stages, but two or three of them have, um, they're really working with the end of life and what could that ceremony look like so that they can be somewhat empowered. Because I think ceremony is very empowering. Um, You know, in so many ways, you just get a sense of yourself in the whole, whether it's with your community, whether it's with a candle, you know, whether it's with flowers or a tree or so I think we're I'm watching how it's becoming more and more uh people are talking about it more at ceremonies sort of becoming but I, I think it's 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 um necessary, I would say. I think it's necessary. And I, I'm I'm so uh moved by it. You know, what can happen within a sacred space, however you create that. And it can be created really anywhere. It can be created in a hospital room can be created in, you know, anywhere we can create sacred space if we have the parameters for that. So I'm very interested in how we create the conditions for sacred space. You know, it's easy when there's a building, a church, uh, but not so easy when, you know, you don't have that to fall back on. So how do we create a sense of the sacred, which to me is, is really a necessary and helpful thing. But a lot of people choose not to. And, you know, there's no, again, we can't judge that as being, it's not right or wrong. But I do see how people fall into the ceremony as a way of, you know, I belong somehow to my life, to a bigger life, you know, to everything. And Mm -hmm. I find it, you know, it's probably the most reassuring thing we can do is to be in ceremony and be in community or be in a tiny little ceremony, which is your own, you know? So we had a young mum come and she wanted to do a ceremony for, basically she was dying and leaving her baby, which is a one-year-old. And she wanted to bring her closest women friends and just be able to, you know, embrace her sorrow and her grief about, and it was beautiful. She set up an altar with photographs and writings that she'd done and, She had these four very close friends and she just was able to, you know, go into the heart of the matter, you know, in a, and I think the sacred circle can hold that in a way that um, is difficult when you're just, you know, having a conversation per se from the, from the cognitive space. You know, I think that the heart space opens in us in a sacred space and we need that so much, don't we? We just need that connection to the heart space so that we can feel ourselves in the midst of it so yeah so
0: i've i've found it and i'm sure you probably have too i've found that when people are involved in planning yeah. their own ceremonies whether it's while they're still alive or mm-hmm. after they've passed mm-hmm. it brings to mind my younger sister joan mm-hmm. who died very unexpectedly in 2010 of a a cerebral aneurysm that ruptured and was on a vent for several days and we took her off the vent and she passed. Well, within an hour, my brother-in-law, Regis, came out and I was in the waiting area. uh, She was in an ICU and Mm -hmm. we were waiting for the funeral home to come get her body. Mm -hmm. And he said, she's always wanted ornaments, Christmas ornaments given at her funeral to everybody that attends. And I said, what? And he said, she's told me this for 15 years. She wants everybody to get a Christmas ornament to remember her by. And I said, can you handle that? Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, first of all, I don't live in town. I have right. lived here for decades. Right. Secondly, she died on a Wednesday morning. The wake started at, at Friday afternoon, less than 48 hours yeah. later. And I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to get? Because I knew it was going to be a mob scene. So right. I came up with 350 baby pink glass ornaments with her initials painted oh. on them, with a white bow. Oh. And on either side of her casket were Christmas oh. trees that were six feet tall, pre-lit with these ornaments on them. And we said to every and she and we buried her on her 50th oh. birthday, oh. which was. Awful. So we, I said, everybody, you take an ornament. And then I had one of the other uh, parlors in the funeral home. Yeah. We had these huge sheet cakes for a birthday party and everybody got a piece of birthday oh, cake. Love and then the ornaments that mm-hmm. were left over, we I had big baskets. And so I had her niece's be hostesses at the funeral and they would give a program and they gave an ornament to anybody that hadn't gotten one. Well, all these years later, Janie, I have people every year at Christmas time uh, say uh, that their Joni ornament was the first one they put on the tree. Oh, so beautiful. So that,
1: that lives on. Yeah. These yeah.
0: Awesome. And I have a tree in my kitchen. Mm. Of course, I took the ornaments that I wanted first
1: because I thought, what the heck,
0: I'm doing this, you know, I might as well, I might as well take it myself, but it's in the corner in my kitchen in this beautiful planter. Mm. It's lit, it's got, it's got Mm. about 20 of her ornaments on there and it's up all year round. So that's an example of her. She mm. didn't know she was dying. I mean, it was very unexpected. And so but her husband said, She's said this Holy for 15 it. years, something. And what's up with that? But, <laughs> but boy, like, did she know uh, what an impact that would have on cute. people for the rest of their lives, as oh, long as oh. they're putting up Christmas trees. Oh. And some of her friends tell me that they just have them hanging. you know, in a, in a room or in a window or on a mirror or something like that. What a
1: beautiful story. Thank you for
0: sharing. Yeah. 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 Something about that. Mm -hmm. In your book, you talk about a pot of whales. Oh yeah. Tell (laughs) us about that story and tell us how it applies to everything that we've been discussing.
1: Right. It's such a, yeah. So it was, it's, I think it's such a beautiful story and, um, it's in the books. I won't tell it in detail, but, um, Yes, this woman was having to go and have a very intense uh, conversation with her surgeon, where she was going to have to have her, likely have to have her leg amputated, and she was very, very bereft. She was probably she was in her fifties at the time, and um, or maybe just sixty, and so she was on the ferry with her husband, and they were going over um, from Vancouver, from Salt Spring Island, over to Vancouver, and um, she was she was just. You know in a really despairing place and she overheard on the on the loudspeaker of the ferry that there was a pod of orcas uh off the you know starboard side of the ferry and of course when that happens everybody jumps up and goes and watches this you know spectacle just gorgeous living on the west coast you know and she said for the first time ever she couldn't get out of her seat she was just in a real real mess and her husband said come on you know and then then she felt this kind of pull it was like something pulled her up out of the seat not him but you know like she felt i have okay I-, I have to go so she went out and she watched these this pod there's a resident pods around in the pacific and uh, northwest here and there was this just beautiful multi you know generations of little babies and and they were just just dancing and you know right off the ferry close to the ferry and so later when i talked to her after she'd had her appointment and she'd gone through and she said i got through that appointment like i i felt like i was fine and he was telling me i was going to have to have this amputation and she said i was showing him these yoga poses with one leg and how i was really quite well equipped to have this done and she said i completely surprised myself. And she said, I really believe that, 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 that visitation of the whales, that it, you know, she said it wasn't about me coming, you know, calling them in, the fact that they were there, she said, just completely changed my view. And she said, and I, and I had a whole experience of these generations of people and animals along the West Coast who, Who have lived and died. I mean, she just had this sort of one of those openings, I believe, like a portal to say, this is life, death, it's all here. And she said it just calmed her whole system down so that she could enter into this um, conversation about her cancer and how they were going to treat it. And actually, a a great little end to that story. She's the one person in the book that's actually living. Uh, The other people in the book have um, have died, but she, she sent me a text the other day and said, I'm just celebrating my 90th birthday. So she's actually, you know, she's, she's learned, she learned how to live with this, um, you know, and I, she's, you know, that's to me, nature responds. I do find that happens, happened a lot in my life. Nature responds at times where I'm really, you know, just feel like I need some backup somehow, but I'm not saying come to me, but they, you know, it nature seems to know, I find anyway, that it knows what to do. Um, So that story to me was such a, I don't know, it's a real tribute, I think, to the fact we're connected, and that we do belong to lineages. And we will come here for a time, and then we'll leave. And what a blessing to be here, and a blessing to have this beautiful interconnectedness with, you know, this natural world and with each other. So yeah, thank you for that's, that's a precious story to my
0: heart. Yeah. I agree on the nature teaches us and mm-hmm. animals teach us. Anybody that's ever euthanized a beloved pet, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, yeah. is that yeah. draining for when you yeah. you are with a loved one who's dying? Right. I believe that it is because it's excruciating yeah. and the grooming process can be equally excruciating. Exactly, as yeah losing a, right. a loved one who's a person, right. I had a woman call into my show last night who was going to euthanize her, she and her husband mm-hmm. were euthanizing his horse today, the next day. And I told her a story about how I had read that wild horses do this ritual called breathing air. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of this? no. Where they, if in the wild, if a horse is dying, the other horses will very reverently come and mm-hmm. put their nose next to the dying horse's nose and oh. they call it breathing air.
1: Oh, and I
0: said to her, I, I had read a story about mm-hmm. Mustangs, wild mm-hmm. Mustangs doing mm-hmm. that. And she said, well, the other horse is in the barn mm-hmm. with the horse who's dying. Mm-hmm. She said, my horse is a Mustang. And I said, wow. well, take your horse oh. into his stall. Yes. And let them breathe air because they know as a species mm-hmm. how to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. she was just so moved by that. I even wrote a blog on it That's last beautiful. year about yeah. breathing air. And to yeah. your point, I agree.
1: Yeah. I think
0: nature and animals really yeah. can teach us so much yeah. about how to, how to put a humane and an elegant patina on such an excruciating mm-hmm. experience and then from the spiritual side to know that that your loved one is surrounded by angels and the spirits of deceased loved ones and pets. Yeah. And that brings so much comfort yeah.
1: to yeah. the dying
0: person and also the family. I um, I just have talked the to animals
1: I've seen after someone's died, you know, and after they've even left the house or um the the animals go and they just they walk around, they can feel, you know, the imprint, I would call it. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Just a quick story. I just, uh, it's funny, I was when I was walking here this morning, I remembered this story and it was about horses. And um, it was a woman I knew quite well. And she called me maybe a year ago and said, oh, I've had a new diagnosis and I'd like to see you. And we had some very beautiful time together. And she um, told me about a dream that she'd had where she was standing on a beach. It was one of these big, beautiful you know, vacant beaches, and she was on her own. And in this far distance, she saw a herd of white horses. And then she realized they were coming towards her and they were galloping down this beach. And she said, I knew I had to just stand and let them come through me, like come. And she said, I wasn't frightened. And these horses came galloping right through and she felt herself being embraced in the herd. You know, she just got swept along with that. It was so touching to me. And I said to her, well, then that's your meditation, you know, in these last days, just to imagine you being swept along in that, horse, you know, the wild horse. It's just so touching. So I think that these animals can come in our dreams as well. You know, they can come in all in all ways. So it's, it's lovely, isn't it, to feel that there's this connection, you know, whether it's outside of us or inside of us. I agree. A couple more questions,
0: then we'll wrap this up. What can family, friends and non-medical caregivers do to support a person who has a cancer diagnosis, whether it be terminal or not? Mm-hmm. Because the big cancer, the big C, seems to be the thing that's the scariest. And it seems that it's more common, it's more prevalent. I heard mm-hmm. last week on an interview that 1700 people die from cancer in the US every day. Oh, wow. Yeah. 1700. Yeah. 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 And are you finding it's more prevalent and what can we do to support mm-hmm. our loved ones who mm-hmm.
1: receive that diagnosis yeah. or support ourselves? Right. Well, I think it, I mean, it is more prevalent. It's, I think one in three, one in two or three people now are going to probably have cancer in their lifetime. I mean, the good news about that is that the treatments, you know, there are many cancers now that are, and this new shift towards this individualized cancer treatment is really moving fast. So there's a lot of hope in the the new treatments. Um, That are coming. So I think, from a more of a psychological or psychospiritual perspective with people, I think the biggest thing I hear from people about their families and what they do right and what they do wrong is that, first of all, they start to their anxiety and worry starts to as happens um st- starts people start to tell them what to do so you've got to do this and you have to do this and you, they've got a whole list of you know supplements and people email them like you've got to get on this wonder drug or this wonder supplement and so we invade so much our anxiety makes us invade people's space so they can't even find their own way so as a family member and I've certainly gone through this my father had a stage 4 brain tumor and died within, you know, 16 weeks of being diagnosed at 67. So I certainly know this from a personal perspective as well. You know, you just want to help. So your instinct is to move toward and then get them sorted, you know, and we get, we get over um, controlling in a sense. And I think that's really harmful. I think that we give too much advice. We, we get, because we're, we want it to go Okay so i think that i would say hold back um get become better become a better listener it's one of the things our retreat teaches people just listen really just listen a lot of the time they don't need the add on of You should, you know, take the word should from your vocabulary. Um, But I often say, you know, ask, ask your person, what do you want me to do? How best to help? You know, we think we know our loved ones, but actually in a situation that you've never been in before, you don't necessarily know what to do to help them or support them. So do you want me to do research for you? Because, you know, maybe you don't want to, you know, find out more information about things you could do to help yourself. And the person might say yes or no, but again, you can't necessarily predict. I don't think my, you know, my husband or wife would want to do that, you know, to, to find out more stats. Other people go immediately to the computer and Google everything and then get themselves overwhelmed. So I think you're looking at it as how can I relieve the stress from the situation? How can I bring comfort? How can I bring, you know, warmth and connection? And, and I think that you, you really have, you see, you as a supporter, you're having your own experience. And I think the biggest thing you can do for your loved one is to take your own experience somewhere else in the sense that you can, for the time being, when this new diagnosis has happened. So the person you normally would turn to would be your person who's going through this diagnosis. So for a time, I suggest that you know you find someone else to share your deepest worries and fears with. Because the person who's had the diagnosis already has those. They already have their own fears and worries. They don't need to, you to add on to that for the, in the beginning because it's just too much. And then they start to feel they have to take care of you. And so I think that it's wise to get a counselor, friend, you know, walk with a friend every day and just be able to share how hard it is. So I think at the beginning, later on, it becomes easier to share both experiences. This is you want to hear about my experience as a supporter. You know, it's 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 a powerful thing to be able to share what it was like, but not at the beginning. It's too it's overwhelming. So I think your job is really to provide comfort and be creative. And if someone says, "I just don't feel like eating." Then you you know get creative about maybe what kinds of food would be helpful. And so emotionally, you're, you're trying to, in, in hypnosis is a wonderful term that's it's about mirroring. So I always say to people, mirror what's in front of you. So if the person is quiet and wants to just be, you know, just still or rest or just mirror that so that you can give them the space to be that. If they're feeling suddenly they've got energy, don't say I think you should rest. You know, go with the energy. So then, oh, do you wanna should we go out? Should we take a drive? Should we take a walk? So match and mirror the energy that's present. And that's being heard and seen. And the person will feel so supported by that. And I really love that in my own life to say, okay, I don't need to override, you know, like or make just just try and go with what's, you know, what's happening. And it can make us frightened. What if the person wants to stay in bed all day? Well, is that really going to harm anyone? You know, if it was weeks of that, yes, then we might need an intervention. But mostly people know what they need. Their bodies know what they need through treatment. And just kind of hold steady. That's, that's as best you can. It's not easy because you're also you know, struggling and grieving. So, but I think the family can create such a beautiful, steady, um, holding space that allows the person to be able to process their feelings and and just even if some, you know, people say to me, well, oh, they never, they're not talking about how they feel. Well, just let it be. You know, sometimes you just have to do it inside. Some people, in, you know, as you know, process internally and then they'll start to talk, perhaps. But at the beginning, that survival instinct—they've just got to get through the practical side. Some people get very irritated and angry and family members say, what am I supposed to do? This person's being a real pain. <laughs> well, I'd say, well, put your boundaries in, like, well, you should anyway, you know, somebody's, so you don't have to be a different person. You don't have to be a, you know, the best caregiver that ever lived. You're human as well. So you can bring your own boundaries to that. Say, you know, right now, I think I'm going to just let you rest because not enjoying this conversation, <laughs> you know. I'm not enjoying this kind of where we're going with this. So let's just cool it, you know, rather than getting into it. That's probably the only time. Don't match it because it's not helpful, you know. We do that so easily, don't we? Ignite things. So anyway, so I hope that's helpful. There's lots. Yeah, of- very helpful.
0: Mm. Very helpful you in closing you have mentioned several times that you hold retreats several mm. times a year please tell us about those and then also is there another treasured memory from those retreats that you can mm. share you mentioned the one woman who mm. came but is there another one oh. and and can yeah. anybody come to them or is it only for canadians
1: right well, we've, because we take just such a small number of people, we take eight people per retreat, so we can really go deep. So, and we do five retreats a year. So we do have a limit to the number of people. So we have said, because there are five other retreat programs in the U.S., one being Commonweal, if you go to the Commonweal website, which is commonweal.org, they tell you that the other retreat um, retreats in the U.S., and these are all modeled within the, with the same principles, We've made it our own. We're the only one in Canada. So I could never say only Canadians. I don't, just don't work that way. <laughs> but so, it would ha, you know, again, people can connect, but there aren't a lot of spaces. So it's good to look at the other programs available in the U.S. And that's, there's some wonderful programs. Uh, Smith Center in Washington, a state wonderful center, and there's others. Um, so the retreats are a five-night, and they're really, again, as I said, for people to come and explore what it means to have cancer, what it means to live with cancer, what it means to die from cancer. And and we have um, people with all types of cancer and all stages of cancer. And we take them through a wonderful process that includes contemplative practice, it uh, includes wonderful food, it includes bodywork and massage and art and music, and then some group work. So I We've created it around what I think of as these conditions for healing. And I think those are what we've been talking about, really nature, silence, movement of the body, ingesting wonderful food, non-prescriptive in a way, you know, you can't, there's some things you can't eat. No. Well, there's ways to eat all the things that are like treats as well, you know, so good food, um, bodywork, art, and the music is all these conditions. I think they're universal conditions for people. And then within the context of those retreats, you then can find your unique conditions for healing that these kind of emerge as the week goes on. Oh, I just love pulling up a chair and sitting by the creek. You know, I've never, have never done that. That's such a helpful thing, how to decompress your nervous system. So the the retreats I think are sort of a deep immersion in work that you can do um, outside of retreat with the right people, you know, to, 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 have um, people that can help you find those spaces and work with these, you know, what I think of as these conditions for healing, and there's so many stories of people. And I, uh, the one that just popped into my head, um, is a fairly recent story: a young woman um, in her late 30s, with dealing with a uh, stage four breast cancer, and had been for a long time. I mean, has lived a long time with it. And she told me that she was really carrying generations of pain from her family, uh, her family history. And because breast cancer had gone through her family line and so, and she was very interested in genealogy. So she basically, all these people, her grandmother and her aunt and her cousin all had had this genetic breast cancer. And she said, I seem to, I just need to do my own work but i seem to have all these people you know it's interesting in terms of the work you do you know she was just carrying so she said i feel like i need to go to the creek and i need to get a river rock for each one of my relatives and i need to lay them in the creek bed together and i need to bless them and i need to say thank you and I need to say this, I need to have my life, and I need you to, you know, be in a way, be laid to rest. So she did that, and it was very beautiful. And then she asked us to plant crocuses in the forest. It's a Pacific Northwest forest, so I didn't know if they'd take, but we all then planted them as as a symbol of spring. And it was very, very beautiful. And then she actually, interestingly enough, sent me a photograph of the next morning she had gone and done a A little prayer in that space where she laid down the ancestors, and she sent me a photograph which she didn't see at the time. But you know how sometimes you can see things in photos, and there were two things she saw. One was a a mist was in the photograph, like kind of a fog around her, and the other one was a column of light that came right down from the trees and landed at the side of her head, which is where the brain tumor was that had. Um, and she said, what is that? (laughs) And I said, well, you, you know, you tell me, I mean, that was so amazing. So again, this, these ways that, um, nature, I, I more and more, I'm fascinated by that. So what it did for her is it comforted her deeply that somehow there was this invisible world that was, you know, you know, coming to support her. That was very, very beautiful. So those are the things that happen that are surprising and, of course, sustaining in so many ways. Well, and it wraps
0: it back around to one of my first questions with King Arthur's court, the lady in the lake. (gasps) What? The lady in the lake with uh, the mist and the beams of light that were coming in. And, And they've found references. There's a gal who's a historic... Fiction author mm-hmm. named Sydney Pike, mm. P i k e, oh. and she writes about Arthurian legend. And oh. she goes and she finds historic references for the, all the stuff from the Arthurian legends, and mm. it's all in Scotland. Mm. And the lady in the lake, she's got how that evolved and where it happened and Mm -hmm. all of this other stuff is fascinating. I'll have to read more about that again. Ah, Yeah, but that's the first image that came to my mind when you were describing, I'm thinking the lady in the lake. And so Uh we're wrapping it up with where we began this conversation. How can people get in touch with you? How can they learn more about you and your work?
1: Well, through, um, uh, my book, obviously, which you've, put, you've mentioned Radical Acts of Love. So that's what it looks like. Um, that is really a lot about the work and not just the retreats, but the work. And then uh, our website, which is org, So it's dot O R G. And that's, that will give you lots of newsletters. There's a blog on there. There's a whole lot of uh, information. And I, I think it's information that can, there's poems and just that can actually nurture and nourish people, regardless of whether they get to Vancouver, you know? So,
0: yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to yeah. join us. I think you're extraordinary and the work you're doing is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's a canonization process that's begun to make you a saint after <laughs> you pass. So, you know, <laughs> thank your, you. your atheist communist mother will be thrilled. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: When you, you're canonized. <laughs> thank you. Well, so. you you know, you. I just want to thank you for your beautiful mission of service and help to people. I mean, it really, it's quite remarkable. I just loved learning about you and thank you. I mean, I just feel it's lovely to meet in this space and hopefully we can, you know, our joint conversation could be of help. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, everybody, Alrighty. I'll see you
0: next time. Sending you lots of love from Sweet Home, Alabama <laughs> and from Canada too, from yeah. Janie. Yeah. Bye everybody. Yeah. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening.